This week was the State of the Union address. Democrats in Virginia are defending killing babies, they're dressing in Klan outfits, and they're sexual assault. So it really hasn't been a good two weeks for them. In Canada, we celebrate World to Job Day. The history behind that suggests free people should not be celebrating this. Former sex slaves of ISIS are being harassed here in Canada. So we're looking at the history of slavery and Islam. We also asked the question, can Islam be reformed? let's look at a little political correctness rules that we need to catch up on. So we all know that wearing blackface is wrong. That's obvious. We don't want to mock black people. But what you might not know is that if anything black at all is on your face, that's also racist. Mary Poppins is now racist because Mary, the chimney sweep, and the kids have dirt on their faces in a scene where they're cleaning chimneys and dancing around. So now, according to the PC rules, this is racist. Because this is black and it's on their face, therefore black face. So, okay, I have a question here. Does this mean we can't use facial scrubs or masks that are black? I should probably know that because I have some of those in my home. In other news, the Virginia governor, Ralph Norum, he's finding out about this rule. You see, last week we talked about how this governor was cool with delivering live babies, keeping them comfortable while the doctor and the parents decide if they're going to kill the baby or not. That was last week. This week, another horrible side of this man, his yearbook from medical school. So we're not talking high school here. We're talking med school. This is an adult man. Has a picture next to his name with two men. One in blackface and one in a full out clan outfit. So Northman's not really sure which one he is. I can't remember, did I wear blackface to that party or was I the clan member? I feel like you should remember that. Later he says he thinks maybe he wasn't either one. Okay, I feel like you would remember if you dressed up in a clan outfit as an adult. Also, according to this yearbook, his nickname was Coon. So it's not really been a great week for him. So people are calling for him to step down. However, there's a problem with that because Justice E. Fairflex would be the governor if he stepped down. That's a problem because there's a woman coming forward saying he sexually assaulted her. All right. So the next person who would be governor if uh, the guy who wants to kill babies and dresses in clan outfits has to step down and the next guy can't do it because he like sexually assaults women. The next one would be Virginia, Virginia Attorney General Mark R. Hearing. Well, apparently we just found out that he also dressed in blackface and got pictures taken in the 1980s. So Virginia used to be this solid Republican state. And this is what they're dealing with after voting Democrats this time around. I can't help but wondering if they might have some election regrets. 
Of course, this is a reminder to all that the Democrats were the party of slavery. They were the ones that refused to vote to end slavery and literally fought a civil war trying to keep their slaves. And when that didn't work out great for them, they created the KKK and the Jim Crow laws. So it really should not come as a surprise that these are the same people who now today have pictures of themselves in Klan outfits or really even that they would call for the death of innocent babies. It's the history of the Democrat Party. Now, after a week of this being in the news, it was probably a really bad idea for the Democrats to show up to the State of the Union dressed all in white. I mean, they were just asking to be turned into a Klan meme, and that's exactly what happened. It didn't really help that they sat there and refused to applaud or stand when Trump talked about how great America was, or how both the black and the Hispanic population now have a record high employment and a record low food stamp usage. This was only made worse when they did stand and dance and cheer about the fact that they had been elected. It was kind of awkward, ladies. I don't mean weird, like in the weird mom dance moves you were doing, those were awkward for sure. And that high five into the air, AOC, like just high fived nobody, that was really cringy. I mean, just the fact that you were dancing but having a job, but sitting like bumps on a log about blacks and Hispanics having jobs, all while dressed in white. I mean, the memes just made themselves. Other than the awkward Democrat women, the State of the Union was really powerful. I was especially thankful for the remarks about the horrors of abortion and a call to make late-term abortion illegal across the United States. Just a reminder, 31 years of that being completely legal in Canada for any reason, all the way through late-term abortion in Canada. You don't even have to have a valid reason. Legal, 31 years. Another powerful moment in the State of the Union was when the World II vet sitting next to the Jewish man he liberated from the Holocaust and the story of the boy on the train heading to the death camp only to hear the words, it's the Americans, it's the Americans, we're saved. I mean, listening to that Trump tell that story, I had actual goosebumps come over me. I came away from the speech with the idea that America is this amazing, great country. Even as a Canadian, I could feel the pride of our neighbors. I was just, I was just proud to be a neighbor of America. The goal was unity. And even though unity will never come with the Democrats, I believe there is hope for unity in America. I didn't believe that a few months ago, even maybe a few weeks ago, but more and more people are moving from the left to the right because they do love America and they don't want to see it ended. The goal of the left seems to be to destroy a great country, and that is not a goal shared by most Americans. As people stop listening to the news and begin to think for themselves, there is a turning toward the right. And I feel more hopeful now than I did a few months ago. This weekend, I had a new hope for us here in Canada as well. Last week, I told you about um, how there was going to be World Hijab Day. And I told you to follow me on Twitter because I was going to be posting stories and pictures with no hijab day. Well, on Friday, we did have this special day and people across Canada were celebrating it. Non-Muslims were wearing the hijab, trying it on, giving it a chance. Reporters took pictures of themselves wearing it. The most disturbing thing was an elementary school that put the hijab on its young female elementary students. 
One father in particular was particularly angry when he discovered his daughter had been given a hijab. He discovered this when her picture showed up on Twitter. The teacher posted a picture of the girls in her class all wearing the hijab. I was expecting Canadians to praise and applaud these stories, but the exact opposite happened. Thousands of comments on the post and every single one of them that I read was in disagreement of what was happening. The teacher had to take her post down because there was so much backlash. But last I saw, the CBC still had their post up, but I have yet to read even one positive comment. The hashtag no hijab day was filled with Arab women sharing their stories of being freed from the hijab. I saw so many positive comments and love poured out to these women from my fellow Canadians. I also noticed that the hashtag world hijab day was mostly from Arab sites. To me, this was hope and it was the exact opposite of what I thought was going to happen. There were some Canadians, however, like the teacher and the reporter, who were standing in solidarity with the hijab. And I understand these are well-meaning people who think they're standing up for the rights of minorities, but they're wrong. They're standing up for the attack on women's rights, and they're standing up for abuse of women. Here's a history lesson of where the hijab came from. Mohammed was a merchant who married his rich boss, who was a woman. He then had his vision and declared himself a prophet. And that was, you know, a short version of the start of Islam. It's obviously more complicated than that. However, I don't have time to tell that whole story. Anyway, Mohammed had a friend named Umar. This guy actually wanted to kill Mohammed at first, but then joined him and became an important person in Islam. And later on, there'd be like the second caliph and Umar would actually be the person who ruled during that time. Anyway, Umar loved looking at Muhammad's wives. And by this point, Muhammad had a lot of wives. That's another story we'll get into another point. But Umar kept telling Muhammad to make his wives cover up so that Umar would not be tempted to look at them. And by the way, I'm probably brutally saying this guy's name wrong. Whatever. One day, after evening prayers, one of Muhammad's wives, her name was Saadi bin Zama, something like that. Anyway, she went outside to go to the washroom so Uma saw her out there and said, I see you. I recognize you, Sada. So after she finishes going to the washroom, she went back to Muhammad and told him about his friend Umar, who was being super creepy and cringy and kind of pervy. So then suddenly Muhammad hears from Allah that all women should be covered and only their eyes should be showing. This made Umar very happy. So who really came up with this idea of head covering? Was it Allah? Was it Muhammad? Or was it his this pervy guy, Umar? To me, it sounds like this pervy guy watching Asada have a poop got really creepy. And then Muhammad decided to cover up his wives so that Umar would stop staring at them and being gross. I think we have a term for that today. It's called victim blaming. Anyway, if you want to read about all that, I will actually post a link to the Islamic scripture that tells that story. Also, Muslim women are taught that if they show even a strand of hair to a man they're not related to, Allah will send them to hell and then hang them by their hair in hell. So even if some say they're choosing to wear it, the question is, are they really? The hijab is much more than just a head covering. It's a covering of everything except the hands and face. 
This does not empower women. I was messaging with an ex-Muslim on Twitter and I found out that part of this is this rule that women can't ride bikes or horses because, and this is so cringy and weird, they might lose their virginity to the bike or the horse. Okay, so why are we pushing this in Canada? The story of Yasmin is one that should make us consider this question. Why is this in Canada? So I'm going to post a link to Yasmin's website in the show notes. I'm going to sum up her story here, but if you are interested in hearing more, please look her up on YouTube and on her site. She's actually written a book that tells the story. So Yasmin was raised in Ontario, only about two hours from where I live. Her first five years, she was raised as a Muslim, but they didn't follow all the teachings. However, at the age of five, her mother became the second wife of a Muslim man, and he forced the family to adopt the Islamic way of life. So just for like pause here for a second, this is in Ontario, and her mom became the second wife of this guy. Okay, anyway. Yasmin was no longer allowed to play outside with her friends, have birthday parties, she had to wear the hijab, and she also had to leave public school and attend Islamic school. When she reached high school, Yasmin was sent to public school, and she enjoyed the freedom of the Western culture she hadn't experienced, even though, by the way, she'd been living in Ontario, she hadn't had the freedom of Western culture. Her mother saw she was becoming too Western, so pulled her out of school, but eventually allowed her to return. At the age of 17, the family went on vacation to Egypt. Yasmin woke up one day to find her family had returned to Canada, but she was forced to stay in Egypt. She was forced not only now to wear more Islamic covering. At this point, only her eyes were allowed to be showing. She was also told she would have to marry her cousin. At the age of 19, engaged to her cousin, Yasmin begged her mom to let her come back to Canada for a visit before her marriage. Her mom agreed. As she sat on the plane looking out the window at Egypt below, she knew she would never return. Her only chance at freedom would be in Canada. Of course, her mom was very upset when Yasmin refused to go back to Egypt, but the wedding was called off. Then her mom found a new man for Yasmin to marry, and she was forced to marry this man. Soon after that, she had a little girl. One day, her husband looked at the baby and said, when are we going to fix her? It took a while for Yasmin to realize he wanted to perform female genital mutilation on their daughter. By the way, once again, just a reminder, we're in Ontario at this point. Yasmin knew she had to get out, but she was captive. She was not allowed to leave her house unless her husband was with her. And when she left the house, she had to be covered from head to foot with only her eyes showing. There was no way for her to escape. Can I remind you again that we're in Ontario? Then one day, her mother got a nosebleed that wouldn't stop. So Yasmin called 911, and the ambulance came and took both her and her mother to the hospital. When her mother was taken in to see the doctor, Yasmin was left alone in the waiting room. For the first time in public, alone since high school, she was then approached by a man and a woman. They told her they were from CSIS. That's the Canadian FBI. They were watching her husband, and he was a member of Al-Qaeda, and they believed he was planning a terrorist attack. Remember, we're in Ontario. They wanted to help her. Yasmin agreed to help the man and the woman capture her husband, and after that happened, for the first time in her life, she was free. Free for the first time since she was five years old. 
to walk outside without the hijab on. Yasmin is the founder of hashtag no hijab day, the day she has on world hijab day, when women from all over the world send in videos of them taking their hijab off, many knowing that they could be beaten, imprisoned, or even killed for doing it. And this is not just Middle Eastern countries. These are women in Canada. Another story that happened less than an hour from my house is the story of a 16-year-old girl. I'm going to call her A. A was the youngest in her family. They were this really strict Muslim family, and she was not interested in living under Sharia law. As a Canadian, she shouldn't have had to live under Sharia law. She didn't want to wear the hijab, so she took it off when she was at school. She also wanted to dress Western, you know, like people in Ontario do. At one point, she told her school she thought her father might kill her if he found out she was not wearing the hijab. So family and children's services looked into the situation, but nothing was done. Eventually, fearing for her life, she ran away from home and she moved in from, with some friends. Her family begged her to come home and promised that she could make her own choices. So she moved back home, but soon realized her life was still at risk. So she moved out again. Then at the school bus stop one day, her brother showed up and took her home. She was taken to her room where her father was waiting for her. Her father then threw her on the bed and strangled her to death with his own hands. Her mother was upset and crying because he was only supposed to break her arms and legs. Both her father and her brother were found guilty of murder and are now serving life sentences. Across the world, girls and women are forced to wear the hijab. They are killed or imprisoned for not wearing it. But the fact that this is happening here in Canada and the fact that both of these stories happened within a two hour drive of my house is terrifying. This is why we cannot say we love freedom. We cannot say we support women's rights and at the same time support World Hijab Day. But what do we do? Of course we believe in religious liberty and if a woman really wants to wear the hijab then she should be allowed to wear it. But how do we know if she really wants to wear it? How do we know we're not looking at a 16 year old girl like A or, or a girl like Yasmin? How do we know if we're looking at a devout Muslim or a woman who's enslaved and desperately wants freedom? It's a messy topic and one I honestly don't have the answer to. I don't know how to solve this problem, but I do know that we do have a problem. And the first thing we need to do is address the situation. One of the things I've started to do is listen to the stories of ex-Muslims, hearing them and supporting them. They're hated by Muslims, but they're also called bigoted and Islamic phobic by liberals. They're banned from Twitter and Facebook for speaking out about their own experiences in a kind of weird religion. They know that they need to be heard. That's what they need. And others need to know that they want to leave. They will be heard as well. So I'm just throwing this out there right now. If you're a Muslim girl and you want to leave and you are trapped, message me because there are people who will help you. You don't need to live like that, especially in Canada. World Hijab Day was not the only Islamic problem in the news this weekend. 
There was also a story of former sex slaves who are now in Canada but are being harassed by ISIS who are also in Canada. One of these women was bought and sold on the slave market six times. She was finally freed and came to Canada, but one of her many rapists are now calling and texting her with very explicit pictures and videos from her time as a sex slave. The numbers are coming from Alberta. This is one of the girls, but there's more. They're not safe here in Canada. ISIS is threatening them here. I'm gonna put a link to this story as well. What I hear people say is the sex slave is just something a small fringe group believes in. That's not part of Islam. So I decided to look up the history of slavery in Islam. First of all, Muhammad owned 40 slaves. He bought them and he also sold them. This is really significant because Muslims are taught to live exactly like Muhammad. He's the perfect example of what a man should be. So if he owned and sold slaves, then not only is it permissible, it's how one should live, according to Islam. As Islam spread, it continued to buy and sell slaves. They were taught that you were not allowed to own a Muslim, so they had to conquer other worlds and take those captives as slaves. In the year 600, Islam was only in Medina and Mecca, but by 644, they had conquered Arabia and spread into parts of Egypt. By the year 666, okay, they had conquered Persia, and by 750, the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire is where the worst slavery took place, and they had many, many women as sex slaves and men as working slaves, but in a horrific act, the men slaves were actually castrated, even the child slaves, and many of them did not survive the act of being castrated. While both white and black people were slaves, most of the slaves ended up coming from Africa, and they had a name for them, uh, Z-A-N-G. I'm probably, I, there's no way I can pronounce that right, Zhang. Anyway, the other large group of slaves that they had, besides um, the black white slaves from Africa, were young Christian boys. So as Islam conquered an area, they would give everyone three options, convert to Islam, pay a tax, or die. This, by the way, is the same three options Islam gives today when they conquer an area. So if Christian families could not pay the tax, they would take the male children as payment. These boys were then castrated, and if they survived this horrific act, they were forced into a special section of the military. In the year 869, a group of black slaves rose up and tried to fight for their freedom. The war ended up lasting 14 years and ended with 2.5 million deaths. Islam won that war. The Arab slave trade continued to thrive, and over a thousand years later, in 1441, the Atlantic slave trade started. Now, this is the only slave trade that we are taught about in school. In fact, I've even heard some people say that they were taught in school that this is when slavery was invented. No, the Muslims were very active in this slave trade as well and were more than happy to sell their slaves to this new market. In 1500, the Arab slave trade expanded to the Indian Ocean as well. This particular area of slave trade didn't end until a little over a hundred years ago. By the 1700s, Islam controlled most of the Middle East, 
and they were still very involved in both the Atlantic and Indian sea slave trades. Now, the Atlantic slave trade officially ended in 1867. This is a very fascinating story and one I'm going to cover in a podcast this summer. However, the Arab slave trade continued. Just a reminder. So, the Atlantic slave trade that we learned about in school had ended, but slavery was continuing on in the Muslim world. That makes me kind of mad because while I was sitting in school learning about the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade, and by the way, it was horrible and wrong. I'm really glad I learned that. I was not taught about the slave trade that was actually still happening at that time. So the Indian slave trade ended in the early 1900s. However, the Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and Carter slave trade ended in the 1950s. And another slave trade was abolished. It was abolished in 1981, but not outlawed until, are you ready for this? 2007. Now this, of course, is official. It's officially outlawed, but it's still very much an open practice today. You can go to slave markets where Christian boys and girls are tied up and brought out and sold in Libya and many parts of Africa. In Saudi Arabia, there are many slaves. They're called servants, but they are told they can't leave. And if they talk about leaving or if they disobey, they're threatened with Chop Chop Square. I talked about that in another podcast. That's a place in the market where people are publicly whipped, caned, or beheaded in Saudi Arabia. The other thing I hear is this. Christianity went through a reformation and Islam just needs to do the same. Well, let's stop and think about that. Christianity started as a religion that by definition wanted to be little Christs. We went to we wanted to look and live as much like Jesus as possible. Church history started with a hundred years of writing the New Testament, different people writing the New Testament, spreading the story of Jesus and the good news that God loves them, came to earth died for us and wants us to be in heaven with him. All we have to do is ask him and he'll forgive our sins. While writing the New Testament and spreading this message of hope and love, the church was arrested, tortured, and killed. For the next 200 years, we were met with 10 waves of extreme persecution. The church refused to fight back and only showed love even to the ones who were killing them. It was this act of love to the very ones killing them that eventually made Constantine and Helena convert to Christianity. They were, of course, in charge of Rome at the time, and this gave religious freedom to the church. But by this time, in the 7th century, the church had begun to be corrupted. It ended up becoming a political force. Then for about a thousand years, there was a dark time. Many people tried to reform the church during this time. They were burned at the stake. It was finally a breaking point when Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door. And while he's given the title of the reformer, it was the deaths of those before him who would open the hearts of the people and they were ready to rise up against the church and demand reform. They just needed a person to lead them. And that is who Martin Luther was. So the church was reformed. And by reform, we mean it was brought back to what it originally was. It was made to look more like Jesus Christ to follow the teaching of the letters written in those first 100 years that are our New Testament. Reformation, by definition, is to go back to what it is supposed to be. What if I said Islam is currently in a reformation? What if I said the fact that Islam is currently in a reformation is the entire problem? 
After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, modernity became the influence on Islam, and many Muslims began to embrace modernity. It was in the 70s that Islam started a reformation, a going back to what it once was, and that's the problem. In the Middle East, women who were free to live the way they want, dress the way they want, work outside the home, were suddenly wrapped up. And this is the term Muslims use when they talk about the hijab, to be wrapped up like clean candy. Also, like Muhammad, there was violent attacks and the drive to spread Islam through force. Christians, once again, were given the option to pay tax, convert, or die. Jews all left in fear. And just so you know, there are no Jews living in Muslim countries. In fact, they can't even visit. This spread throughout the Middle East, and now only a sliver of land where women are free, and that sliver of land is in Israel. And the Muslims are trying to take that land also, and have been trying for years. Women are no longer allowed to leave the house without their husband. And here in the West, that all seems so far and foreign away and far. But now, here it is on our doorsteps in Ontario. We need to figure out what we're going to do about it. So can Islam be reformed? The answer is sadly yes, and that's the problem. What needs to happen actually is another Christian reformation because we've walked away from what we were at the very start in the years 33 to 100, the early church age. The early church cared about the needs of other Christians around them. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are being murdered all over the Middle East. And really, if we care, we're doing a horrible job of showing that. Back in the early church, Christians were family. The early church also had the goal of spreading the news of Jesus Christ throughout the world. In the early church, they weren't afraid to preach the gospel. In fact, they said, I am not afraid of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. They weren't afraid of being mocked or called names. In fact, the very term Christian was used as a derogatory term in Antioch when others began calling them names and called them Christians. The church just took it and accepted it. That's the very founding of Christianity. It is this. God made you. God loves you. And he wants desperately to have a relationship with you. God is holy and therefore is apart from sin. And the problem is that we are sinners. But God in his great love for us came to earth as Jesus Christ. And he took the punishment for our sins. And now when we turn to God and believe in Jesus and ask for forgiveness, he forgives us. He loves us. And he's ready and able to save all who just believe on his name. So if that's you today, then call out to him. Ask for forgiveness. Believe Jesus is God and he alone can save you and accept his love and forgiveness. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. For more, for more blogs, videos, and podcasts, visit my website at lauraleesiemens.com.